and welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited to share uh, with you the conversation I had with David Trelevin on the podcast today. David is quickly becoming a very important figure in the mindfulness community, especially since the release of his book in February. Uh, The book's called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, and we discussed that at length in our conversation. He offers some really cool insights uh, into the intersection of mindfulness and trauma, uh, two topics that really do seem to be getting a lot of attention these days. For those of you that haven't heard of David, um, a little background. He is a writer, an educator, and a trauma professional living in the Bay Area. His work focuses on the intersection of mindfulness, trauma, and social justice. He received a, a master's degree from the University of British Columbia. I was actually surprised to learn he um, comes from Toronto originally. Um, he also got a PhD in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's currently a senior teacher with the Strozzi Institute, which helps leaders embody skillful action, and with Generative Somatics, an organization that integrates personal and social transformation. Nowadays, he's busy gearing up for a series of workshops on trauma-sensitive mindfulness, including um, a stop pretty soon at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass, and of course, um, his uh, visit to Montreal, where he is one of the presenters for uh, Mindfulness Growing Pains. We had our conversation about a month before he said to arrive in Montreal. Um, So a little bit more about that event. Um, Again, it's called Mindfulness Growing Pains, and it features a public lecture on Thursday, the 19th of April, um, talking about research on aversive experiences in meditation, and a two-day training for mindfulness teachers and meditation teachers uh, called Working Skillfully with Meditation-Related Challenges. David, of course, is one of three presenters, and I spoke to the other two, Willby Britton and Jared Lindahl, in episode two of the Mindspace podcast, which can be found on the Mindspace website. That's mindspacewellbeing.com. A little background on Mindfulness Montreal, in case you're not aware. Uh, It is a not-for-profit community initiative that I co-founded in 2015. Uh, Its mission is to bring together mindfulness practitioners, teachers, and healthcare professionals in Montreal. Uh, All the information you need about the event and about Mindfulness Montreal is available at mindfulnessmtl.com and at the Mindfulness MTL Facebook page. And of course, you can get updates from me um, on my Facebook page, which is Dr. Joe Flanders, and my uh, Twitter feed as well, which is also Dr. Joe Flanders. So back to my conversation with David, Um, you'll hear very quickly that he's incredibly passionate about his work and also very knowledgeable. Um, He told some really interesting stories, uh, provided some uh, insight into the sort of on the ground details of working with trauma and um, offered some very interesting analyses of some of the situations I raised with him. We talked about some of the basics of trauma and how mindfulness can be helpful. We also talked about some of the risks involved in using mindfulness unskillfully. And we had a fairly long discussion of clinical issues, um, including an analysis of a recent experience I had with a client in my own therapy practice. 
And we spent a fair amount of time unpacking David's claims that trauma is inherently political and that mindfulness teachers and therapists in a way have a responsibility to develop greater sensitivity to the social and political context of trauma. So I hope you find uh, our conversation as interesting and stimulating as I did. And so without further delay, here is my conversation with David Trulepin. So hi, David. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Really happy to be with you. All right. I got a, a bunch of questions. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, and so why don't we just jump right in? Um, maybe you can start by telling us what you're up to these days and uh, how you got into this uh, trauma-sensitive mindfulness project. Yeah, happy to. Well, first of all, I just want to say really happy to be on the podcast and congrats on the podcast. I've listened to what you've been up to and um, excited to tie this into your conversation with Jared and Willoughby recently, which will factor into my story here. But my days right now are spent a lot just throwing my weight behind this book project on trauma-sensitive mindfulness, uh, doing a lot of teaching. I'll be, you might have mentioned this, but I'll be in... Um, at the Center for Mindfulness in UMass, at UMass in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'll be up with you all in Mindfulness Montreal, really excited for that. So really just being in this conversation and feeling really lit up by it. And the story of how I got here is, it's a long one and I'll give you the, the headline version. I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I was a meditator there and I had a pretty long practice, really took myself pretty seriously in my early 20s, really got into it and had an experience on a retreat. I was on a longer term retreat and had an experience of really um, dissociating from my body at the time. It was deep in practice, had a day or so of not being able to really feel my feet on the ground. I went to the teachers at the time and received mostly what was a basic instruction of trust that and take it back to the cushion. Yeah, that's what I did. I was a really earnest meditator, took it back. And, but then when I was at the other side of a retreat, I realized that the retreat had really ended up being dysregulating for me. And I started talking to people about what had happened on retreat. And it actually led to this intersection of mindfulness and trauma, which was surprising to me. I didn't feel like I had a, necessarily a history of trauma in my past, but for reasons I get into in the book, it actually made a lot of sense. I ended up doing a dissertation on the topic of like really what's the intersection of mindfulness and trauma. And the dissertation defense got recorded and the video went viral. Uh, and I put that in air quotes because as much as a dissertation on meditation <laughs> and trauma could go viral, but a couple thousand people saw it, including Willoughby Britton from Brown University, who you had on the show and on the podcast. And her and I started to get into a collaboration and a conversation and the thing that I learned coming out of that experience of the video was that there was actually a lot of people who were having experiences at the intersection of mindfulness and trauma. Uh, I became a bit of a, a lightning rod. People started sending me stories. And so I started to write this book. And really the guiding question of this book was, A, what's the intersection of mindfulness and trauma? But more specifically, what would anyone who is teaching mindfulness or offering mindfulness interventions, what would they need to know in order to 
practice mindfulness in a safe and transformative way for people that had experienced trauma. Right. Well, that is so much at the center of uh, what we're going to be doing at the Mindfulness Montreal Workshop and so much at the center of the interest in the mindfulness community in general and in Montreal. So really excited to get into that. I wonder if you could tell us, uh, I noticed in your bio, you mentioned um, that you're a senior teacher at uh, Strazi or Strazi Institute. I'm not sure how to pronounce mm-hmm. that. It's called, they pronounce it Strozzi Institute. Strozzi, okay. And so is this, a, uh, you're teaching meditation there or what, what's, what are your activities there? And at the, at the generative uh, somatics uh, organization as well. Yeah, happy to talk about it. Well, I was trained as a psychotherapist. I trained in Vancouver. And my work there ended up being primarily with uh, male sex offenders. That was my work. It was for three or four years doing group and individual work in a forensic BC program with men who'd committed sex crimes and also many, almost 85% who were survivors of, of sexual abuse or sexual violence. So that was really, and you were saying a lot of uh, your listeners will be clinicians, and that was really my entry point to doing healing work was working with men, working around trauma, and also really being interested in what is justice here? What's, what's restorative justice? Um, how, how can this function inside of a healing context? So that was really my entry point into psychology and healing. And I came down to the U.S. for this doctoral degree in psychology, and I found this path called somatics. And folks who know about it, it's really a body-based approach to healing and transformation. And what I found was that I had been trained in talk therapy But what I discovered in my work was that just because someone had a particular insight about what wasn't working for them or what they needed to change, it didn't actually mean they could take different action or under pressure. And so I discovered this community of somatic psychology and started to do more work there. And so actually the work I do with Strozzi Institute and Generative Somatics is to bring really a body-based approach to learning and transformation to leadership. So we work in profit and nonprofit settings. And where I get most passionate about this work is we work with social justice organizers to empower them to do more effective work in the challenging frontline work that they're often doing. So mindfulness is actually a part of that attention training and helping leaders be able to skillfully use their attention. It's a huge part of the work. Myself, I'm not actually a mindfulness teacher, and I have a deep bow to the folks who've been doing training in mindfulness and know how to actually offer instruction in a skillful way. So I'm interested in the intersection of mindfulness and psychology, and that's part of my work with um, Strozzi Institute and Generative Somatics. Um, where does um, somatic experiencing fit into this area you were just describing? Yeah. Well, in the story that I told you about, I, I came back and from this retreat, and people kept pointing me towards trauma. And I was confused. I thought, well, this doesn't this really doesn't resonate with my history. And, but I went and saw a trauma therapist and I had the, I had this profound experience over three or four sessions where the person I was working with was less concerned about my story. And they were much more interested in terms of what was happening at the level of my psychobiology. It was really profound to me. I'm like, well, I want to tell you about what's happening. And she's like, no, just tell me about what's happening in your sensations. Mm-hmm. And what came out of this work was actually realizing, and I get going to this more in the book, 
is that the years of work I had done working with sex offenders and being exposed over and over again to some really traumatic stories was creating some tertiary or secondary trauma. And I was having some symptoms of having nightmares and actually some uncontrollable sensations. And that's what was popping up on retreat for me. And so this work really helped me see, oh my gosh, okay, well, trauma actually holds some relevance for me. That's what was showing up on retreat for me. And about four or five sessions in, I said to the trauma therapist, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, you know, how, what are you doing? And she said, well, it's actually, it's a psychotherapeutic approach to healing trauma called somatic experiencing. Do you want to come train in it? And I said, yes, I want to. And I went to the training and I found it to be very, very helpful. And I'm going to, just to skip ahead and bookmark this, here in the Bay Area, the um, uh, Spirit Rock, the insight community here, actually has their teachers go through a somatic experiencing module so that they can understand this intersection of mindfulness and trauma. I'll come, we can come back to that yeah, later. Good. I do want to come back to that later. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's to your listeners. It's a very, very practical and grounded approach in working with trauma. It's not necessarily uh, heavily empirically supported. They haven't done a ton of research there. There's some, but it's just a very practical and intuitive approach. And the punchline and getting a lot of, getting a lot of traction uh, among various communities. Oh, for sure. And, you know, my experience is because it's such a practical approach to actually working with trauma. Mm -hmm. It is getting traction, I think, in a very practical way. And I hope there's more research in the next, you know, coming years. But for listeners who don't already know, the, the punchline of that work is that more is not more when it comes to doing trauma recovery work, which is just such, it was, it was such a mind-blowing moment for me that really countered a lot of the training I had as a therapist where I thought, well, if, if someone's emoting, mm -hmm. then let's go into it more. Right. And that makes me feel great as a therapist. Maybe they're getting their money's worth or, oh, they're crying, something good's happening. Somatic experiencing has a whole different frame of working with traumatic symptoms, but also working with places of resource in the body. And folks might have heard these words like titration, pendulation, but it's, it's this fantastic framework where Peter Levine, who was a pathologist, was looking at how animals in the wild recover from overwhelming events, and then actually applied that into working with humans, and has a very powerful and very practical framework that you can work with. Hmm. If you don't mind, there's one more part, though, that we'll get into a bigger part of our conversation, which is that I got halfway through that training and I got really frustrated. Hmm. And the reason I got frustrated is that we were talking about trauma, but we were talking about trauma as an explicitly individual experience. It was really being framed as an individual tragedy, this really bad thing that could happen to people. And as someone who had a, a passion and an interest in social justice and commitments there, there, it felt like there was something missing. And we were talking about the biological and the psychological mechanisms that happen inside of trauma, which we can unpack here, but we weren't talking about the social dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so that opened up, I, I went on a search and found this group, Generative Somatics, who I referenced earlier, who really brought a systemic frame to talking about trauma, which I'd be interested to talk about here with you and mm -hmm. listeners is 
when we're talking about trauma, we're doing that in a deep social context where there are systems of oppression that are targeting groups of people and that are privileging others. And I'm saying that just to acknowledge, yes, trauma is real and it happens inside of this context, which is not happening inside of a vacuum. And so I think for us, as we enter in right now on this podcast to have a conversation about trauma, it is a path. And we are talking about there is so much to know, <laughs> it's so humbling that we want to be complex and open to these conversations about how is trauma playing out in the day to day. Man, I want to ask you like 14 questions at once here. Yeah, I realized um, that was a lot. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, I wonder if we can uh, kind of back up a step and kind of start with the basics. Uh, there may be many people that are familiar with somatic experiencing or uh, trauma in general, but want to make sure we're all on the same page and we can kind of sit, uh, set the foundations um, with some basic stuff. So for example, what is trauma? What are you referring to when you use that word? It's, it's, it's so widely used. I think there's an increasing sensitivity to it and an increasing interest in understanding more about it. But um, what exactly do you mean and what are we talking about? So trauma is an extreme form of stress. And it's a term that we tend to reserve for the worst things that can happen to us as humans. There's a fantastic writer that folks may know, Judith Herman. Judith Herman wrote a book called Trauma and Recovery, just this fantastic trauma specialist, researcher, feminist who was doing work around trauma and said that when we're, when we're talking about trauma, we are coming face to face with both our vulnerability as humans in the natural world and also our capacity for evil inside of human nature. And so with trauma, you know, we're in the deep end. We're in the deep end with trauma. And, you know, I actually was just on a plane and watching um, Van Jones on CNN. I, I, I was just browsing through the news and, and Oprah was on CNN. So here are these two, you know, pretty big uh, celebrities at this point who are really in the news. And they were both talking about trauma. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really starting to come to the fore and I'd say in part, the reason that's happening is because of all the organizing happening these last four years, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. I think trauma is just baked into these movements. And so I is, I'm glad it's coming to the fore. And I think it's such an important conversation. So what's in, happening? Oh, sorry. Go ahead and Yeah, but just, I, just, just this other part is I really appreciate you saying, well, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Because trauma can also, we don't want to water it down. Mm -hmm. And I want to say to your listeners right up front, trauma is not just a negative emotion mm -hmm. it is not just a it, it's not just oh it's a it's a, not just a really really bad feeling it's actually this very particular intersection of a lot of different psychological neurological mechanisms happening but i do want to define it right now and say as i understand trauma it's any event or a series of events that's stressful enough to leave us feeling helpless frightened overwhelmed and profoundly unsafe that's, that's the terrain we're in with trauma. You know, this could be witnessing or experiencing violence or a, in a serious accident, being targeted by oppression. And research says, you know, 90% of us will be exposed or will experience a traumatic event in our lifetime. And the one other thing I want to say is that doesn't necessarily mean that there are long-term consequences for everyone who's exposed or experiences trauma. 
and this is something you and others will know, right? We, we can go through a trauma, we can metabolize it, mm-hmm. but there are other times where the symptoms of trauma, and this could be like flashbacks or agonizing uh, physical sensations, this extends past the traumatic event. And, and here we're in the territory of what we call post-traumatic stress. And this is where people are left really dysregulated. They have tr- trouble controlling their mood or their arousal or their attention, and it becomes this kind of unseen form of labor that people are experiencing when they're having traumatic symptoms. And then this can also, some listeners, you will, you will have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. Probably all of them have, you know, PTSD. And this is a specific cluster of symptoms that happens for a month after the traumatic event. So that's, the, that's what I, how I'll define trauma. And my, my focus here in the book was the psychological impacts of trauma and, that includes but isn't limited to PTSD. Okay, that's that's really helpful. Um, I professionally um, work with trauma typically in a cognitive behavior therapy context, and you know some of the people at Mindspace will have a similar approach. There, there are other psychotherapeutic modalities that uh, people use at Mindspace in other mental health facilities, and uh, of course, um, mindfulness. Uh, is now sort of entering the conversation uh, uh, as a potential tool. I know um, as an MBSR and MBCT teacher, we're very careful about um, screening and working with people who have experienced trauma um, because uh, it can be unsafe or uncomfortable for people with a trauma history to um, go into one of these eight-week programs. Um, so what is your take on how mindfulness is currently uh, being used to help support trauma recovery? It's a great question. And in my experience, as, as I'm starting to actually be in more conversation, like with you and, and getting out and doing more teaching, my experience is that a lot of folks who are working in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, who are doing mindfulness-based stress reduction, people are bringing a lot of nuance and understanding already to really bringing an understanding of trauma. And this was one of the primary motivations of writing the book, was to, to support, well, really to challenge the idea that mindfulness-based interventions or mindfulness practices are necessarily a panacea to, to all problems. And my experience early on in the research was there was a number of people who were making a jump, and this happened in, you know, in your interview with Willoughby and Jared, who were, who were making a leap and saying, well, mindfulness has been empirically shown to reduce stress. So then it would hold that when it comes to traumatic stress, that mindfulness interventions would be helpful. Mm -hmm. And that in my research and experience, that wasn't actually the case. It was for some people and others not. And that was the the frame of the book was to say, oh, mindfulness can both help or hinder trauma survivors. And to your point, really, I think the most important thing for any of us that are offering mindfulness instruction or interventions is just to be cognizant of the fact that it's not a panacea and that we don't necessarily know best. That's to me, that's where 
there has been, there are times it's to really try to push against, um, I don't know if I'd call it arrogance, but the sense of like, we can do no wrong. And so I think that's the first, to your point, that's just the first laying the groundwork of saying, if we can go into the conversation about how mindfulness is being used with survivors in a complex way that's nuanced, then we're already ahead of the game because I think it's deeply subjective. To your to your point about how it can help, the as, as I see it, and again, this is a conversation that is live and it is happening, and I'm in this conversation not as the expert with all the answers, but I'm here to say, here's what I'm learning. Can we do some research around this? Let's ground this. Is that what, what has been happening in the research is this notion that mindfulness can enhance self-regulation. And that that can be actually profoundly beneficial for people who are experiencing post-traumatic stress and who are actually dysregulated in their bodies and their minds. So this could be, when we talk about self-regulation, we're talking about the ability to regulate one's attention, uh, regulate emotions, and also be attuned with one's body. This is all so helpful. I want just a quick story here of a client that I work with. I tell in the book of, I work with a client who had a really intense temper. He was a really kind person and kind of behind the scenes there was there was a ton of anger and this the way this played out is once he almost um hit his three-year-old and he came in he came in to do some work he said i just need to learn to work with this and it turned out that he was having some flashbacks he was struggling with symptoms of trauma and we started to do some work around mindfulness and mindfulness interventions and it was so helpful for him in a number of domains one, you know, around body, he would start to notice signals and signs that he was at, say, example, like a two or a three out of 10 in terms of his emotional arousal or his frustration, instead of hitting an eight where he would kind of blow his lid. He started to track the signs inside that he was actually needing to take care of himself in a different way. Or other times he could, he could use mindfulness to actually purposely focus on a sensation in his body that was more stabilizing as opposed to being more emotionally evocative and it would help him feel safe or stable. So mindfulness for him was very helpful and it often is for a lot of people. And that's in the hands of folks who are using it skillfully, I think it can be incredibly helpful around the ability to self-regulate. Right. And so what's missing here? Why do we need to improve our sensitivity? Um, What's the danger well, that's also a great question, and the the basic argument that I'm making, and I want to know what you think of this or your experiences working with with clients and students, is that imagine imagine for a moment that you're someone who's experiencing symptoms of post traumatic stress. That could be flashbacks. Again, that could be at any point you could be flooded by sensations that are profoundly dysregulating, right? Like imagine that's your way of being, that's, that's how you're moving through the world. And then you come into a contemplative environment and you're asked to pay close and sustained attention to your present moment experience. Now that can be, again, that's, that's a huge shift for a lot of people to make. And I think it can be very, very helpful and often is for a lot of people. But there's this potential pitfall where if someone is attending 
to what's predominant in their field of awareness. And what that is, is a flashback or the feeling of one's gut clenching or legs tensing, you know, of symptoms of trauma, that that can actually end up exacerbating the symptoms and make and have someone left kind of worse for wear. And what's challenging inside of a contemplative environment is you don't always know as the teacher how everyone's doing, right? You can't, you can't always see, you can't check in with necessarily with everyone at the end of the class. And so people can end up falling through the cracks. And so mostly what I'm wanting to say here in this book is not that mindfulness is bad. I, I want to be so, uh, I want to emphasize this up front. That it's it's not making some blanket statement or fear-mongering to say, oh my gosh, there's trauma out there. If we're doing mindfulness practices, this can cause huge problems. In the, I, I, what I want to say is actually, let's just get as nuanced as we can about if there are people that come to us who are having trauma symptoms, but maybe we can make some slight adjustments to practice or to instruction and that would help then let's move in that direction. Let's, what would we need to know as, as mindfulness practitioners and teachers that would help offer practices in a way that will be safe and productive and that, that isn't actually entrenching traumatic symptoms in someone who's coming to us? I, I find this is just such a rich uh, area of conversation. And part of what kept uh, kind of coming up for me in reading your stuff and listening to the interviews you've done on other podcasts is... Uh, it's this very challenging notion that for a lot of people, the one of, if not the core mechanism that makes mindfulness a powerful intervention in mental health and stress is this capacity to overcome what we call experiential avoidance, to mm-hmm. be with difficulty, to turn, turn towards difficulty. And it's just an incredibly powerful um way of being that can overcome so much uh, difficult experience. And then, whoa, wait a second, uh, that doesn't work for everybody. And that might be, in fact, triggering or even dangerous for other people. And so what? how do we process this, this very fine line between when it's okay to turn toward and be with and when we need to go seek safety and stability and grounding? How do you, how would you recommend people work with that, walk that line? That Joe, that that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) It really is. No, it's it. And that's, that is the question. And my recommendation when we're in this territory and this, this particular issue is for people to stay in that question. Mm. I, I actually, I really think that that's the path is for a willingness to really stay awake as right. Uh, you right as someone who is offering you know again speaking to folks who are either offering mindfulness interventions inside of their clinical work or as mindfulness teachers or for those of you who are you know for those listeners who are practicing but especially for those who are in a position of power and authority to really just there's a to me there's a responsibility in that to stay very live and very current and very subjective with the people that we're working with to be in that question you're asking, when does leaning in to practice actually support and alleviate, what, what does it alleviate suffering? I'll put it that way. And when is it exacerbating symptoms? And gosh, Joe, I mean, 
I'd actually want to turn this back on you for a second to hear about how you think of this because people get very fired up about this in my experience Mm -hmm. because I'm not saying uh, we can't have people feel uncomfortable. Like to me, actually, that's an important part of practice. One of the gems of mindfulness is actually developing the capacity to be with, to be with discomfort and not immediately turn away, which is something that survivors of trauma actually, it's a capacity they need. So I'm not saying, and on the other side, there's no pain, no gain. People that really hang in practice and push it and stay really firm and entrenched, and that can be problematic. And so there is a sweet spot that we can, and I can talk about, I'll give you the frame that I use in a moment, but to me, that's the number one thing is staying live, staying open and staying in conversation with people and saying, how are you feeling after practice? How are you feeling the day after? And is this, would you assess, like together we can assess, is this improving the quality of your life? Is this alleviating trauma or is this actually making things worse? And let's just be in a very live conversation about that. But I want to turn it back on you. Can you say from your, because I know you have a lot of time in here. How would you, how do you think of that question that you're posing? Sure. Um, I, I could say that I feel much more comfortable working with this in my individual therapy practice because mm-hmm. there's an ongoing conversation and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of back and forth about how people are feeling and, and the impact of various interventions. Um, it is, uh, for obvious reasons, way trickier in a group. Um, and so some of the uh, some of the, like the approach to work with that in a group is screening. Mm-hmm. And if I pick up someone who wants to join an MBSR group, but has uh, some unresolved trauma, um, and I'm hoping I can pick that up in the questionnaires and the short screening interviews we do, um, then I'm going to direct them to something um, more appropriate and a little, uh, something where, where the intervention to be titrated a little bit more flexibly. Um and then, of course, uh, the other way I work with it is I read your book and I take your training because uh, this is a relatively new area and I'm aware that I have a lot to learn myself. Um, and I could, there's one other uh, point I would make here, which is I find it super interesting that you keep using language like, you know, having a conversation or being in a conversation where uh, the clinician part of me wants to hear the guidelines, the best practices, like tell us what to look for. Tell us, uh, you know, what teachers should do in situation X, Y, and Z. Um, and you're, 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 it seems quite deliberately backing off from algorithms around how to work in these situations. I wonder if you can just speak to that choice of language. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's something I feel really passionate about. My intention with with the book and inside of these conversations is is I do want to offer checklists. In some ways, I want to say, and we can talk about this. Is here are five five specific signs. If you're at the front of a room leading an MBSR course, here are five signs that you might want to watch for. For example, someone's muscle tone is really slack or rigid, or they're hyperventilating, or they're emotionally volatile. You know, certain things that we can track for that give us the clues. Screening, another great example. There are practical, structural mechanisms that we can put in place that support us 
I think, being able to identify someone who's struggling with trauma and not have them slip through the cracks. And the, what, you're, what you're tuning into here is that I think it is, it's so important that anyone who is adopting trauma-informed practice do so as, as a path and an ongoing path as opposed to a static checklist. Because if we were trauma is just, it just, it is so much more complex than we can't, we cannot put it in a box. Yes, we can have conversations about specific symptoms and that's important. And we want to keep grounding it inside of research. We really want to keep heading in that direction. It's so important. And the moment that we start, um, I believe, trying to collapse the conversation into just tell me what to do in order to practice trauma-informed practice, I think we get a little stuck. Because again, because of these biological, psychological, and social dimensions of trauma, it's, it's an ongoing learning path, really for the rest of our lives, I think, as practitioners. And our ability to stay mindful and curious about people, about ourselves in leadership and in power, I think that's the key. And I really wanted to resist the idea that this was a box that one could check um, and, and actually an inquiry that one could stay in and stay awake to. Um, so I'm trying to thread the needle along both because I also want it to be practical, but I, I really appreciate you picking up on that. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, I find really tricky here is, um, so I was just chatting with uh, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist. She's been in practice for many, many years. Uh, she does psychotherapy. Uh, she prescribes medications. She's seen a huge variety of uh, different types of patients and teaches mindfulness. And um, she was saying just this morning how she finds trauma work very, very challenging and complex and multidimensional in the ways that we're talking about this morning. Um, and yet uh, there are people teaching mindfulness with you know, the kinds of training that my psychiatrist friend has, and then people with much less uh, training uh, as teachers or clinical training. And sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to understand exactly um, who you're speaking to. And presumably you're speaking to all of us. But I do think there is at some level a difference uh, between people that have a lot of clinical training, a lot of training as mindfulness teachers and people who are just sort of picking this up, uh, you know, doing a meditation retreat and then uh, putting themselves out there as a mindfulness coach. And I think this comes up as well with uh, Willoughby and Jared's work insofar as the, they're trying to speak to different people in different ways. I wonder, uh, the topic of teacher training came up a bit with Willoughby and has come up in other conversations. How do you place um, these more formal credentials and, and clinical experience and all that in this conversation. Well, I appreciate you distinguishing those different groups. And one of the things I, I'd say of those three groups that you're naming, the primary focus I have here are for those who are mindfulness teachers or what we might call you know, mental health professionals who are offering mindfulness interventions and actually, I want to do that with a really deep bow to the people who are working and are trained as clinicians like the friend that you just mentioned and say, 
you know, if you have, for the folks who have spent their time in to really get rigorous around understanding trauma and how to work with it, we need those people. And actually, a big part of my work is to speak to the folks who are, who you just named, who are either training as mindfulness teachers or are coaches, perhaps who are offering mindfulness interventions, to ask them to really respect the folks who have done training, clinical training inside of trauma, and to know when they've hit the edge of their competence to say, oh, actually, I I don't know if I know how to work with this. Because with trauma, in my experience, what I learned right away is this, again, getting back to somatic experiencing, more is not more when it comes to trauma. If you ask a survivor, if someone is, is in a moment of having a, a flashback, if you tell that person, if you're coaching them and you just say, oh, just go into that, that that can actually create more problems for the person. We want to know when to refer. So it's to ask people, and I include myself here, to just keep humbling ourselves about when we hit the edge of our competence and primarily for those people to be able to recognize trauma symptoms and know when to refer. So those are the folks that I want to speak to. And what I want to do with the book is I want to support a conversation and a dialogue happening between someone like your friend who's a psychiatrist and trained and working with mindfulness and others in the mindfulness community who may not have clinical training. I think there can be a really powerful dialogue of saying, what is the intersection there? Do we want to have, for example, do we want to have a trauma therapist or a trauma professional on a meditation retreat? Is that something that we want to consider? I, I have suggestions around that, but really I want to help facilitate that conversation with a deep bow that people have different competencies. And, but I want to be very rigorous with the folks who are just sort of throwing mindfulness like spaghetti at a wall and just seeing what sticks. I just want us to get as rigorous and nuanced as we can about how we're using it and to acknowledge, and this is Willoughby and Jared's point, we do not have many years in of research around the specific intersection of mindfulness and trauma. That was a big part. Yeah. A big part of her conversation with you of this mind the hype article is to say, okay, good, we're at a point in the movement of saying, let's just keep being rigorous with ourselves about who benefits from mindfulness and how we can work skillfully with it. Yes, for sure. Uh, developing more good empirical research is, is the essential key to this whole thing. Um, and interestingly, in terms of uh, gaining experience with clinical issues, ironically, uh, for many people, it's experience that makes us more aware and more sensitive to our limits. And that may be the most challenging part about being a young teacher or a young clinician is not having a strong sense of limits, when to refer, when something is out of our range of expertise. And so, uh, yeah, the, this, this definitely is a big challenge. And, and again, this language around having a conversation about it makes it kind of an accessible way to, um, to, for people to be open and curious and for the humility to, to kind of take shape. Uh, so I, I respect that a lot. Mm. So let me ask you um, kind of straight up, I have a feeling you're going to resist, but do you think all mindfulness teachers should have clinical training? I don't. No, I don't. That all mindfulness seniors should be trained like as, as in psychotherapy or, or 
clinically like in a psychology program? Um, it could be that. It could be um, the kind of training that you offer, um, like developing trauma sensitivity. There may be other areas of sensitivity that would be relevant, um, but one does not need any form of clinical training to become an MBSR teacher. This is true, right. So <clears throat> I, it's, it's a big question. Um, no, I, I don't think, I, I'm here in, I'm here in California, I'm in the Bay Area, and I'm around a number of people who have been trained as clinicians, either social workers or therapists, who are also trained as Dharma teachers or in, in mindfulness and in, or secular mindfulness. And I, I think that that can be a powerful asset for people. And I have met incredible mindfulness or Buddhist teachers who are not clinically trained, who are incredibly powerful teachers. And I don't, I don't think that I wouldn't make that blanket statement of saying everyone needs to be clinically trained. However, where I do want to draw the line is to say, I do think that in this particular context, I'll say at this particular moment in North America, for folks that are offering mindfulness instruction, I think having an awareness of trauma is advantageous and being connected to someone who can, who can do clinical work or being in supervision or being in a community of people who are in active conversation about what we just named of where, where are the boundaries of our competence? When do we hand off? How do we screen? I think that's very important. I think that's very important. So I'm not ready to make the push towards everyone who's teaching mindfulness needs to be clinically trained, but I do think there needs to be some aspect of supervision and some degree of competence that I would want people to hold mm -hmm. and humility, humility on some level. This isn't just the answer to all problems that are walking in the door. But I'll ask you here, what would you say? Are you, wh where do you fall on this line? Oh, you're turning the tables, eh? Um, <laughs> well, interestingly, I would draw a, a, a distinction between MBCT and MBSR. Yes. Um, I do think MBCT is, I mean, it targets in a way a clinical population. And um, I think uh, at least here, uh, most of the MBCT teachers in Canada are trained through the Center for Mindfulness Studies, which is um, affiliated with Zindel Siegel and his group. And you can't get certified to be an MBCT teacher if you're not a health professional. And part of the, the rationale for that is that um, the field becomes automatically regulated by the colleges and the orders uh, for these professionals. So I'm protected or not protected. I'm uh, sort of, my work is overseen by the order of psychologists of Quebec. And that means that my the people that trained me in MBCT are not really on the hook for what I do clinically. So that makes a lot of sense to me. MBSR is a different kettle of fish. Um, and I do teach it in a psychology clinic and it does attract people with clinical issues. And the same could be said for uh, many other mindfulness centers that I'm aware of. Um, and so I do think it's a very tricky question. 
our team, most of my uh, team of MBSR teachers at Mindspace do have a lot of clinical training. And as a sort of director of a clinic, that um, gives me a lot of comfort because I know uh, if something comes up, there will be some level of expertise uh, in managing that situation skillfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't think, you know, um, I don't think that it's impossible to be skillful without this clinical training. I guess I like your approach about being humble and being sensitive to one's limits. And that probably goes a long way. Totally agreed. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Let me actually ask you um, about something that came up in my practice, um, my therapy practice. Um, I, I was seeing somebody who probably had uh, some post-traumatic stress difficulties and um, he was very, very afraid of death. And even just thinking about it kind of set him off in a significant way. The best way I was able to conceptualize it at the time was that it was like kind of a severe phobia, but not to uh, elevators or, or spiders, but really to a category of his own thoughts. And it really petrified him. And he really did not understand what the hell was going on in his body. Uh, and he'd go through these episodes where it was a, very, a huge amount of suffering. Like he was a very successful entrepreneur, but he could not get on with his life in, in these periods and uh, where the symptoms were very present. And I was playing around um, I mean, hopefully skillfully, I was, I was trying to be sensitive to, again, this line between staying with difficult experiences, doing exposure therapy, which we know is a very powerful intervention, but also not wanting to re-traumatize or make the whole thing worse. And at some point, um, doing some uh, very light mindfulness exercises, he started to shake like basically his whole body and almost uncontrollably. And this was something he was familiar with. Um, I wasn't familiar with it. And I was really trying to understand what he was experiencing. And I was blown away. I I, I talked to a bunch of uh, people about it and didn't get a lot of support because no one had seen it. And I was blown away to hear you talk about it in a podcast interview. That's, uh, I think you described that as, part of the part of how people heal uh, from trauma, some people, and that there's a kind of discharge of trauma through this shaking. I wonder if you can just uh, tell us about that. Well, with when we're talking about trauma, I, I don't know with your specific client, and I appreciate you bringing in, you know, a real live example. It's helpful to, to be working with is if we're in the domain of trauma, and this gets back to our uh, work around the somatic experiencing and Dr. Peter Levine is that we're in the terrain of real deep survival based energy in the sympath- generated in the sympathetic nervous system where we're, we're talking about in the limbic and the reptilian brains, we have um, uh, deep wiring around being able to mobilize powerful, significant amounts of energy to protect ourselves. And this is, you know, fight, flight, freeze, as folks will have heard of. And Levine's uh, thesis around this is that 
where post-traumatic stress is happening is that a powerful survival-based surge of energy in the body is in some ways being capped by a freeze. And it becomes unresolved and remains really bound up in the muscles and tissues in the psychobiology. And so that at a certain point in working with trauma, we might get to a level of activation and energy that involves the kind of shaking that your client was experiencing. Now, what's most important, again, this could be like a two-day conversation, is yeah. you know, how is, is there enough of what we might call a container or a safe enough space for this client, for example, being able to both experience this this level of survival-based energy or whatever we want to call it, this this level the shaking. We know that there's shaking happening. And the question I would have in terms of the mindfulness interventions you were using is, could could he basically stay online? Like did he know that he was in your office shaking and or did he actually feel like he was trapped in a different moment and in a different time? He was fully present. Experience. He was fully present, almost like looking at me apologetically that like it's happening again and, and like uh, there's nothing he could really do about it kind of thing. Well, this is a doorway in for those who either are trained in SE or interested in training in it. This is a real doorway in is to say we would both welcome that shaking try to get curious, actually by utilizing mindfulness, try to be curious about the sensations and notice what happens almost experientially and experimentally in the session to see where does the shaking want to go? Is it connected to any particular memories or motor movements? It's something to follow and it's really great body-based learning. Just a, just a quick example of this for, for folks that haven't heard of this, um, this video. There's a fascinating video online and if you Google uh, polar bear trauma, those three words, this will come up as a video. There was a video taken about 15 years ago in the wild in Alaska of a polar bear being um, tranquilized. They were chasing it in a helicopter and uh, they shot it with a tranquilizer dart. And this was kind of an artificial freeze for the bear, if you can imagine. And uh, a couple hours later, they had the camera there when the bear was coming out of this um, this imposed freeze with a tranquilizer dart. And what happened is this level of shaking and convulsion started to happen. And the people that were there, they actually knew what was happening. And they said, just watch, this is the bear actually discharging some of the survival-based energy that was bound up in that experience. And if, you, if you're watching the video and they slow the video down, you can actually watch the bear making the running movements that it was making when it was running away from the helicopter in this case that was chasing it. Wow! And so in this moment, it's just, it's so powerful to see a, a mammal's body be able to naturally discharge what was a very intelligent survival based response. And then what happens at the end is so beautiful is that the bear takes these two or three really deep breaths and comes back and you can almost feel that the experience is released. That's my projection, but you can watch it and decide for yourself. So my question with this client to come back to your client is, does the, does the shaking and the, does the shaking that's happening actually result in a feeling of equilibrium or discharge or relief, or is it more activating? And I think, again, these are the doorways in to just get curious and not make wrong. We don't want to tamp that down. Actually, we want to encourage it when we're working with trauma. However, Joe, if I can just say one thing, 
This is where for a new mindfulness instructor or anyone who doesn't have clinical and training in trauma, that is not the moment to say, go deeper into that. Right. I think that's the moment to say, oh, wow, you're having, you're having a, you're shaking. And have you worked with a, have you worked with a clinician around this? Or, you know, that's a time to actually say, I might be at my boundary and not just keep paying attention to that. Keep being mindful. We want to be humble in those moments. Yeah, that, that is a super interesting and really helpful analysis. Um, what I learned from working with him around this shaking, which happened quite a few times, is that um, it tended to arise when he was relaxing. So uh, he t- to manage all this anxiety and stress, he worked like crazy. He was, his body was super tense all the time. And when he would get home at the end of the day and just lie down and try to calm down, he would always have to pass through this period of shaking first. And um, so I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate this notion that the shaking is sort of uh, taking him somewhere. It's like a transitioning um, into a different state of mind. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I am definitely going to check out that video of the polar bear. It sounds uh, I just, it feels to me that, uh, it would provide some nice context for me and, and continue to understand what uh, was going on with that client. So thanks for that. You're welcome. I wonder, I wonder if we could use this, uh, opening for you to take us through your five principles. Sure. I'd be happy to. That's where the rubber hits the road <laughs> in many ways with the book. Yeah. Uh, sure. I'll try to do just a, a reframing here. Basically, the approach I took with the book was to say, wow, there has been so much helpful and powerful research that's been done around trauma and continues to be done around traumatic stress. If we used that as a lens, text, research, if we use that as an empirical lens to look upon basic mindfulness meditation instruction, what would trauma theorists say about mindfulness practice? That was that was really the that was the kind of the inquiry into the book, and out of this piece of work came five different principles, and these five principles inside of these this is the second half of the book, and inside of these five principles are all these modifications that we can work with. For example, using different anchors of attention, or knowing when to take breaks, or how to. Uh, set up the meditation environment to be supportive of folks who are survivors. You know, that's, that's really the nuts and bolts. But these five principles are kind of the anchor points of ways we can be thinking about the intersection of trauma and mindfulness. So the first one is um, something called the window of tolerance. And the window of tolerance is a, uh, is a theory by Dan Siegel, who folks might know, it was put out a number of years ago, which basically says there is a window in which we can tolerate the amount of physiological arousal that's happening inside of us. And on either side of that, we end up cascading into extremes. And so there's a sweet spot and a window that we can practice within. And it's kind of a guiding principle for us uh, as, as teachers, for those of us who are working with mindfulness is to say, is mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, is this keeping someone in a window? Is it supporting their window? Or is it actually landing them in what we call dysregulated arousal when they can't control what's happening in their body? So that's one. Um, and then 
The second is working with attention, how to skillfully work with attention. Again, as I just mentioned, we can work with different anchors attention. For a lot of trauma survivors, the breath is actually not a very neutral place to rest one's attention. So we can use different anchors like a sense of touch or hearing. So attention is another place I focused. Um, the third is around how to work skillfully with the body. And that's saying there's so much to know about how to work with the body and how do we do that skillfully inside of mindfulness meditation. That could be standing up, taking breaks. The fourth one is around relationship. So I'm encouraging folks to really leverage and utilize relationship in specific ways. Um, longer term retreats where we are just um, kind of cordoned off from each other. They can be very helpful. That can also be activating for trauma survivors. So we want to be skillful about how we're actually helping each other both regulate um, and process trauma in relationship. And the final uh, of the five is, is around understanding social context. Uh, and this is gets back to the beginning of our conversation that any conversation of trauma is actually quite political. And that those of us in power offering mindfulness want to be cognizant of our social context and how power might be playing out with a client or a student. And this is so up in the zeitgeist right now around Me Too and how is it that we impact each other. So that's a chapter on uh, privilege, oppression, how that plays out and how that relates to trauma and mindfulness. Yeah, I do want to revisit that because um, I appreciate how central it is in the work that you're doing and just in your life in general. Um, and, and you really call people to attention on this by saying quite directly that we have mindfulness teachers have a responsibility to, uh, develop the sensitivity to diversity. Um, uh, why it's sort of raises the question for me, does every psychologist or every mindfulness teacher need to become a social justice warrior? Like what, how do we process this call to action? Yeah, we should, maybe we should do another podcast <laughs> talking about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm fired up about this conversation and I'll give you my answer here. And, you know, if, if by, if by social justice warrior, you're meaning someone who's um, deeply engaged in the world, who's thinking critically, who's fighting for equality, who's fighting for justice and all people inside the society, then yes, like on some level, I do think, yes, we should be social justice warriors, all of us. I want that for, for our world. If, if you're meaning it in a more disparaging context, which I think is how more, more often being used, where everything kind of becomes reduced to identity politics, uh, then no, I, I don't think that that's, that we all need to become social justice warriors. I, here's my take. I feel like we're at a moment where there is so much powerful organizing happening. And if we in the mindfulness, I'll say for me, speaking as a white male inside of a mindfulness movement that has been to this date in my own experience and from talking to a lot of people, predominantly white, predominantly liberal, and is getting to a moment of actually challenging that inner makeup and that white kind of echo chamber happening inside of the mindfulness movement, what is, the, what is our commitment as people working in mindfulness to wake up to the world around us? And I just want to tell a quick story about this, about the why. You know, the mindfulness teachers I know, they want to be 
they want to be alleviating suffering. They want to be doing really good work in the world and not just for people with privilege. They want to be doing that for all people. I had a friend go up to a retreat. Uh, she's, uh, she's a woman who's South Asian. She went up to the retreat and she had this interaction with this teacher. I tell the story in the book where um, she was actually just, she was doing an interview with this teacher. Um, and he, when she walked in, he said, well, where do you, you know, where do you, where do you come from? And she said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm from the U.S. And he said, well, no, where's your family from? You know, he's trying to make small talk. And she said, oh, well, my, you know, my family's Korean and came over to the U.S. a couple generations ago. And he said, oh, so, you know, has, has mindfulness always been in your family? And there was this way in the moment that she described it that, again, he, he was trying to be really um, he was trying to make conversation and make connection with her, but it actually came by making a pretty big generalization about her heritage and her lineage. And it was this moment where she went back out into the space. It was a predominantly white crowd that was there. And she just thought, you know, it's so hard for me to feel safe in general. And then here I am back in a space where a teacher made this slight comment that made me just feel unseen and unsafe. And she just felt really frustrated with the practice and with that moment. And so to me, this is in the spirit, this, this, the context around social justice is not to beat it over the head and make people wrong or shame people around their privilege if they have it, but actually to say, for the sake of having a nuanced, skilled, very complex to approach to the practices that we're offering, let's get really skillful about the social context in which those practices are being played out. And as I see it, we just get more powerful. People that have done their work around privilege actually are just better teachers. They can make better connections with their students, with their clients. They have some cultural competence and they know their edges and they don't try to know everything, which I've fallen victim to. Like, I have to be smart about this or I have to know everything. Don't say something messed up. I really want to just open the conversation with folks and say, let's just have a really good look at how trauma is playing out in the world around us. And let's be really clear about our own social context so we can be even more powerful practitioners and teachers inside of this work. And I, I have to say, your approach to this conversation, your approach to your activism uh, is remarkable. And I think very effective because if you take a young clinician who is trying to figure out how to help people and is seeing patients in a clinic or whatever and wants to get good at doing, uh, you know, psychotherapy for people, uh, who are, you know, have PTSD or something like that. If you were to come on too strong and very heavy handed and become very critical and political, um, that might be really stressful for that young clinician is just trying to figure things out. But I totally agree with you that it's just another, uh, skill to develop. And it's, it, it just makes one a better clinician because uh, as I think you said, very, uh, in a very articulate way, um, the social context cannot be divorced from the clinical presentation. It's just one piece of a very complex phenomenon. And so all the power to the clinician that is building that sensitivity. And, um, I guess I'll just, again, just, uh, note the uh, skillful way and, and the empowering way that you're raising awareness on that. So thanks. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. And I, I do want to say um, that you literally put your money where your mouth is because you're doing something very interesting with the sales on your book. Maybe 
you can just uh, mention that before we wrap up. Happy to, yeah. Well, one of the arguments uh, in the book is that trauma-informed practice involves resourcing and supporting organization and groups and movements of people who are challenging the systemic conditions which perpetuate trauma, who are really fighting back for a different world. That this isn't just, an, you know, when we're talking about mindfulness, it's not just an individual path where we're all interconnected. And how can we best support folks who are on frontline, doing frontline work to actually shift the conditions that we're in? And having talked to a number of people around my accountability, be accountability with the book and the access that I'm getting with the book, um, I'm donating 60% of the proceeds towards the book to three different groups that I see is doing really powerful work um, around that intersection of mindfulness and trauma and oppression. And so I'll just say them briefly here. One is the Sigorte Lantress, which is a group of um, indigenous folks here in the Bay who are doing really powerful organizing. One is a Black Lives Matter Healing Justice Network, which is a branch of uh, Black Lives Matter, which is really doing work around trauma, specifically on the ground with communities of folks. And the last one is Generative Somatics, which is that group that um, I mentioned earlier in the program. So if folks want to learn more about it, they can check out my website and learn more about each of the different groups and why I chose those groups. But that's the conversation I want to be in with people is I don't think this is, again, just a checklist. I think this is a path and a practice of what's the world we want to live in and um, how do we change it for the better. So that's what I got up to. And I'm, anyone can email me if they want to hear more. Do you want to just tell people your email address and website and name of your book? Happy to. Yeah. My website is my full name. It's davidtrelevin.com. Will there be a link that people could, um, or will they be able to see my name and how it's spelled? Certainly. Yeah. Okay, great. So you can find me there, davidtrelevin.com. That's the easiest way to email me or if folks want to sign up for any updates about where I'll be. And the name of the book is Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. And it's out with Norton. It came out about a month ago. Seems to be doing okay. Um, <laughs> no one's thrown tomatoes at my house yet. And, uh, and, and really welcome hearing from folks about what they think of it. I, I want this to be in service uh, and practical for folks who are actually working inside the mindfulness community. So let me know what you think. Let me know where it hit the mark or where it could do better. And we'll be, um, we'll be figuring this out as we go forward. David, is there anything else you think we should definitely cover in this conversation? I certainly hope there will be others, um, but anything else you wanted to say or anything else you feel we didn't cover in enough depth uh, so far today? Well, I'll say one more thing. The one thing I'm learning with this conversation is there's just so much to cover. Mm -hmm. And I, I really tried to get grounded and specific in the book about how things play out at the level of one psychobiology. And, and so I just want to note that because there's just, I'm learning on the podcast and on a podcast, it's hard in an hour to really dive deep into these different holes we could go into. But in the, in the book and the writing, there's a lot of places where I take this really deep into say, what's actually happening around fight flight? What's happening in the brain? Um, and it's not just a surface conversation, not that this was, but want to encourage folks, please check it out and, um, and dive deep with it because it's an ongoing path. And there's lots of resources in the book to other writers who are doing great work around trauma. Yep. Um, having gotten into the book myself, I will, uh, agree with you, uh, and encourage people to check it out. And then 
Uh, we also have the amazing opportunity to work with you live in person in Montreal. So I think it's April 19th, 21st um, through Mindfulness Montreal. Really excited to have you come join us. Uh, looking forward to meeting you in person. And thank you so much for, uh, for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Joe. It's really great to talk to you. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.